You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. Before we read our passage, as you're turning there, I want to begin this morning with a question. Uh, it's a simple question, it's, uh, but it's a very important question. And um, don't, you don't answer the question out loud, just answer to yourself. And as you um, answer the question or attempt to answer the question, first ask yourself, okay, do I know the answer to this? And secondly, ask yourself, well, how well do I know this answer? Could I give a reasonable explanation for the answer? Okay, now you're all wondering, what's the question? <laughs> okay, here's the question. How does Jesus defeat Satan? Don't answer out loud. Just answer to yourself. How does Jesus defeat Satan? Don't, don't just try to answer the question, but if you can't answer the question, think to yourself, okay, could I give a reasonable explanation of my answer to someone that would ask me? Okay. Now, with that question in mind, let's turn to Genesis 3, in verse, um, we're, let's just for context, let's just read uh, verses 1 through 15, shall we? Genesis 3, 1 through 15. We know these verses, at least mo- many of us know these verses very well. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. The Lord said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we look to you um, this moment and this hour. Father, we look to you that you be pleased, Lord, to bless us with understanding that, Father, you would open our eyes and hearts to the truths uh, that are here, Father, and in in some cases, some of us are so familiar with this passage that, Father, you would not allow our familiarity to 
uh, to, to blind us in any way. But that, Father, you would truly open your word to or open your, our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts. So, Father, we, we look to you to be our teacher and guide and, and uh, our heavenly Father. We pray these things in his precious name. Amen and amen. If you look up the words Genesis, let me make sure the tape was running. I had one of those thoughts that I didn't turn it on. And um, You ever have those thoughts like, think I'm forgetting something um, that I should be doing? Um, it's, it's, I think it's working. I hope it's working. Um, sorry about that. Uh, back to our text. If you look up the word Genesis in the dictionary, uh, you'll discover that the word Genesis means beginning or source or origin or foundation. Sometimes you'll hear, but not that often, but you'll hear people talk about the genesis of this or the genesis of that. Um, it's maybe not real common, but it's still, it, once upon a time was a very common word to use in common language. It's still, you can hear it um, said once in a while. So the book of Genesis there is the book of origin. It's the book of source, if you will. It's the book that describes the beginning. It's, the, it's the, a foundational book. You know, as we turn to chapter one, we we discover that uh, the the account of creation of how everything uh, became created. And we see that the focus of chapter one is the creation of the earth. And when we turn to chapter two, we see that the focus of creation is mankind. And uh, if we didn't have Genesis three, I don't think we could really make sense of much of anything that's going on in this world. Uh, Genesis three, as we've just read just read focuses on the fall of mankind. Uh, so again, I think it would be very hard for us to make any sense whatsoever what was going on if we didn't have, think about it, if we didn't have Genesis 3, especially verses 1 through 15. How would we make sense of things? Uh, so it's foundation. It's a, a foundational book. And you might ask, um, uh, why why skip verses 1 and 2? Um, well, you know... I've been wanting for quite some time to preach some of the stories in Genesis. I've been wanting to do that uh, for a while now. And what I've really wanted to do is we take our break from our study in Romans. Uh, I thought we would look at some of the stories in, in Genesis. And uh, someone might say, well, what about Genesis 1 and 2? Why are we starting clear out in Genesis 3, um, 1 through 15? And I, I will say that is unusual for me. I usually start at the beginning, don't I? We start verse 1, chapter 1. Um, but my rationale is, I, I got many reasons for starting in chapter 3, and especially focusing on verse 15. One is, I, I'm thinking of the words that a, a seminary professor said. Uh, he was a, a retired professor. He had a lot of pastoral insight and wisdom. And I remember him uh, saying to us uh, on more than one occasion, he said, preach about what you're thinking about. Preach about what you're thinking about. And that's always stuck with me. And, and I've, I've resorted to that on, on a number of occasions. How does God communicate to us what he wants us to preach? Well, a lot of times he'll work on our hearts. He'll work on the heart of the pastor. You'll be thinking about different things. I've been thinking about these stories, you know, uh, that come after the fall. And I've been thinking a lot about them. I'm thinking, well, we need to, you know, these are foundational. We need to dive into these. My second rationale for skipping Genesis 1 and 2 is Genesis 1 and 2, I, I mean, in today's um, economy of uh, 
science and creation and all of that, um, the historicity of Adam, some of you will know what I'm talking about there. That's a big gambit to take on. It's way more than what I would typically have time to take up on a, um, on a given week-to-week basis. It's not something that I would try to tackle uh, with the, the typical sermon preparation I have time for in a given week. Uh, that having been said, I think it would be fun to do someday maybe a small conference on Genesis 1, 2, and maybe even 3 and take it up that, that time. Um, not that we couldn't handle it on a Sunday morning, we, we certainly could, but um, I, I think that these conferences, they sound like fun to me, and you know, while I'm on the subject, let me take this opportunity to give a plug for some of the things we've been talking about doing, and, and I've already shared with you that I'm preparing a series of talks on the reliability, authority, and sufficiency of Scripture, and I've already begun doing a lot of work on that subject, a lot of it is review. But a lot of it is new. Some of the new scholarship that's come out on the subject, and it is absolutely fascinating. I cannot wait to teach and preach on this stuff. Um, it is really good, and I, I'm hoping, and I ask for your prayers. I would really like to be ready to do this by the first week of May. Uh, if we do it in May, I think the first week is the only week we would be available to do it. At our last session meeting, we talked about a Saturday morning of having like three sessions, you know, maybe three 45 or 50 minute sessions on a Saturday morning. And uh, we're hoping that the community, some members of the community outside these four walls will want to come and take part of this. We're not looking for a big crowd. We're we're just looking for people that care about God's word. And we want to be used by God to um, really to, to lead people back to an appreciation and a trust and God's word as uh, authoritative and sufficient for um, for uh, all of our needs. So that's a little plug. Uh, so I hesitatingly ask for your prayers in this as we prepare for this and that God would prepare us for it, would prepare me for it, and that would also prepare hearts in the community to want to come. That God would work in the hearts of maybe even some pastors and local pastors in the area. You know, that aren't maybe aren't maybe really preaching the word of God and allowing the word of God to do the work of God, maybe we would see a couple of them come and want to be part of this. That would be absolutely wonderful. So I ask for your prayers there. Now, back to Genesis. Um, uh, Why are we starting at verse 15? One further reason is because one of the burdens that I have for this message is to show how Jesus defeats Satan. How Jesus defeats Satan. I asked that question a few minutes ago. You answer to yourself. Uh, no show of hands. Don't show any hands. Don't answer anything. I just want to ask you, you know, did you know the answer? Just ask yourself, did I know the answer? Did you say the cross? If you said the cross, you got the answer right. And I see a few of you smiling. That tells me you probably said the cross. Now, I asked you to think, about one, do I know the answer? And two, how well do I know the answer? Because this is one of those questions that we can answer correctly with one single word, get the answer right, and not have a foggiest clue as to what we've just said. So that's why I said, could you give a reasonable explanation at, say, the coffee pot at the workplace? If someone were to come to you and say, hey, you know, um, 
You guys believe that Jesus defeated Satan, don't you? Oh, yeah. Well, how do you believe he did that? Well, he did it at the cross. Okay, if the, if the conversation ends right there, you're good. You can go, whoosh, good. I got it right. I, I, I handled it correctly. Oh, goodness. I'm so glad that uh, it stopped right there. But what if they say, well, how does he defeat Satan at the cross? Uh-oh. I did some pilot testing on this one, asking um, none of you. I didn't ask any of you, but I just asked around. I did ask my poor wife the question. She got it good, by the way. She gets a star on her forehead. She gets two of them. The way she's looking at me right now, she gets three of them. <laughs> but I asked around, and um, a surprising number of people will answer with the cross, but that's all the further they can go, which tells me a couple of things. One, um, we don't really understand how Jesus defeats Satan at the cross. And if we don't understand that, um, if we don't understand that, well, then we don't know how to apply really. We don't know exactly how the cross applies to ourselves. You follow me? So that's what I want to take up this morning. And um, for that, we dig in. It's a foundational question. So we go to a foundational book, right? Um, so let's go. Let's dig into our text here. Uh, I think our chapter here, chapter three, has to be the most sinister chapter in the Bible. Wouldn't you agree? It's such a sinister uh, chapter. Satan, through the agency of a serpent, he actually bamboozles Eve, just absolutely bamboozles her with his evil syntax. Look at verse one. He says, did God actually say, like, really? Did God really say, you shall not eat of any of the trees that are in the garden? Now, we spend a lot of time studying our Bibles. And I think by looking at this verse right here, we can see why we spend a lot of time studying our Bibles. You see the importance of knowing what God actually said? And not only knowing what God actually said, but understanding it, knowing it well enough to realize that it's being, it's being twisted here. And we look at the consequences of getting it right. We're staring that right down in the face, aren't we? It's God's word that's under fire here in verse 1. And that's one and the same as saying it's God's character that's on fire here in verse 1. And that's one and the same thing as saying it is actually God who is under fire here in verse 1. Because we cannot make a distinction or any kind of dichotomy between God, his character, and his word. We live in an hour where our word doesn't mean a whole lot as a culture. It doesn't really mean anything. But God is not like that. His word means everything. And it's a reflection on who he is. It's a reflection on his name. The name that is above all names. And his name is on fire here. Satan is attempting to attack the character of God by attacking what God has said. I mean, just listen to the syntax. You know, did God really say? You can't have any of these trees. Really? I mean, a spin like that makes him sound so stingy, doesn't it? Kind of makes him sound like an incompetent boss who is scared that the people who works under him or her are going to get ahead of them because they're maybe more competent than they are. It's an ugly, ugly kind of thing. It sounds like God wants to hold Eve back. Now, you all know the story. I mean, Eve takes the bait, doesn't she? She takes the bait that Satan is offering. She takes it because she questions God's integrity and she questions God's character. 
and she eats from the forbidden tree and Adam, her husband, eats with her. If you skip down to verse seven, we see the results and the consequences. The eyes of both of them were open. They knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Their eyes were opened. A transformation takes place. A lot of times in my prayer, I even said, Lord, open our eyes, open the eyes of our neighbors, open our eyes. That's the opposite of what is happening here. There, there's a transformation. The opening of the eyes is a metaphor for a transformation. A transformation takes place out of the beautiful lush garden of Eden where they enjoyed the immediate presence of God. They've been transformed and transplanted, if you will, into the realm of sin, evil, death, misery, darkness, and etc. haven't they? They realize that they are naked and uh, they run and they hide. If you look at verse 9, you see the Lord comes into the garden. He calls to Adam and he says, where are you? Where are you, Adam? And Adam answers in verse 10, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, God says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? These questions are not for the benefit of God. He saw everything that took place. These questions are for the benefit of Adam. Adam answers, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree. You see the transformation that's taking place in Adam. If you go back to Genesis chapter 2, he just got done using beautiful poetry to describe his wife. Bone of my bones. Beautiful poetry, you know. Hollywood would have him down on one knee, bending down on a knee, you know, with her hand and, and, and his hand. It would be a beautiful scene. And now he's throwing her right under the bus, isn't he? Right under the bus. Verse 13, and the God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And that brings us to verse 15, where God says to Satan, look at verse 15 with me. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, there are several points here that are pertinent to our discussion this morning. In fact, Genesis 3.15 is a pretty complex little verse. Um, I'm going to show you some of the complexity of it here and try to make it as, as easy to grasp as I, as I know how. Uh, the first issue that we find here is enmity. God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the Hebrew word here is a ba, and it means hatred, it means hostility. Uh, the translators of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, they use the word ekthra, which means same thing, hostility, ill will, yes, even hatred. Now we would ask, okay, if it means hostility, why call it enmity? Well, enmity is one of the meanings of the word, but I draw your attention to this because enmity is a word that describes hostility between two partner parties. You know, the Hatfields and the McCoys. This enmity, you know, between two parties. Now, I can say the Hatfield and the McCoys uh, because what? You've got this constant fighting. You know, everyone knows what I'm talking about there. There's feudal families that are constantly fighting for, for decades and decades. Uh, this can only occur between... Uh, Morally capable people, morally capable persons. What this means in the end is war. There's now war between two parties. And this brings us to the next item, the phrase you and the woman. 
that is between Satan and, and the woman. And we'll talk about that here in a minute, a little bit more detail. But uh, let me just pause right now to say that this is so ironic. It is so ironic. Well, what, you said, well, why do you say it's so ironic? Well, what is Satan after? What does Satan really desire? What does he really want? Does he? I think we might answer and say, well, he wants to destroy Eve. Well, fair enough. Yeah, um, make no mistake about it. He's acting like he's Eve's friend and he wants to enlighten her and help her along, but he hates her. He absolutely hates her. But he's looking for something. There's something in it for him. That's, that's, that's the way Satan works. There's something in it for me and it's all about me. And I want you to bow down and I want you to worship me. That's what Satan wants. I want you to worship me. Of course, he isn't going to tell her that. He's going to come out like that. But it is what he tells Jesus, isn't it? When he's tempting Jesus, we learn a lot about Satan. He takes Jesus up on a high hill during that temptation. He shows him all the kingdoms of the world. He says, see all these kingdoms? I will give you these kingdoms if you will what? You will bow down and worship me. Satan desires worship. There's a powerful application of that to ourselves. Self-worship. Whenever we want people to praise us, we are thinking Satan's thoughts after him. He wants worship. But what's ironic here? Satan wants worship. But what does he get? He gets enmity. He gets enmity. God says, no, 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 no. I'm going to put enmity. I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. Now, here's where it gets a little bit complex. I want you to see that there's a progression here. A progression. The Lord says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Now, here's the, the progression that I want to talk about. I'm using progression very loosely. Uh, I thought about saying, okay, steps on a ladder or staircase, but I really don't want to do that because it's not exactly what I'm saying. Let's use category maybe. Here are three categories here. Uh, we have you and the woman. Let's call that a category if we will. Again, don't not, not too tightly, just loosely. You and the woman, category one. Your offspring, her offspring, category two. Okay, He and you. Category three. Does that make sense? Okay, who are these players? Let's start with the first. You and the woman. Who are the players? You and the woman. Well, the you is easy, isn't it? Because God is speaking to the serpent. And in speaking to the serpent, he's speaking to Satan, isn't he? Satan is the you. In fact, he will be the you in all three of these categories. He's always the you. The you is pretty, pretty easy. And um, so here we have you and the woman. Who is, who is the you? You is Satan. Who is the woman? Well, she's unnamed, isn't she? She's unnamed. We'll talk about that more in a few minutes. Then the verse progresses to the second category, if you will. Your offspring and her offspring. Okay, who are, who, who are these players? Who's in reference here between your offspring and her offspring. In other words, who is Satan's offspring? And who is the woman's offspring? Now, we probably know the answer to this, but how do we know the answer to this? There's a tool that we use 
in interpreting Scripture. And that tool works this way. Whenever we come to a passage that is not super clear, then we search the Scriptures for where the subject is taught elsewhere, but clearer. And we take the clear passages and we use the clear passages to shine light on the passages that aren't so clear. A lot of bad theology comes when we take the unclear passages and we try to use the unclear passages to interpret the clear passages. Someone might say, well, that sounds like a ridiculous thing to do. It's going on right now as we speak in pulpits everywhere. It happens all the time. And there's mountains of books written on using those very principles. No, we, we run to the clear passages and we use the clear passages to teach us the unclear passages. And that's what we're going to do to answer this question. And when we do that, there's many places we could go, but I like, but what's Jesus say about it? I think that'd be a good place to go, right? What's Jesus say? Well, Jesus talking to his opponents in John chapter eight, he says to his opponents, he says, you are of your father, the devil. Now, of course, Jesus is speaking figuratively here, but if these people have as their father, the devil, then that makes them what? Offspring of Satan, doesn't it? Fair enough. So here we have, uh, who are the offspring of Satan? They are those who oppose God and oppose the gospel. Uh, In that case, it was the Pharisees in John chapter 8. Now about the second question, that's easily enough answered. We could go to the Apostle John in Revelation 12. And in fact, Early on, as I was thinking about how to tackle this, I was going to bring Revelation 12 in, but I would love to do that, but we don't really have time for that this morning. We'll do that another day, but Revelation 12 gives us a graphic word picture of what's going on here. But one verse will suffice for our present purpose, and that verse comes from verse 17, where we read, Then the dragon, who is Satan himself, the dragon became furious with the woman, again, an unnamed woman, with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And there, very clearly, there's an allusion to Genesis 3.15 right there. And there are definitions for us, aren't there? Who are the offspring of the woman? They are those who embrace Jesus. They are those who embrace the Father through Jesus Christ. They are those who have received the gospel with saving faith. Who are the offspring of the woman? They are the rest. Or the offspring of the serpent? Well, they are the rest. They are the rest. And, okay, if this, if this interpretive rule that we're using here is sound, then we run another test. And that test is context, context, and what's the third? Context. Okay, we have Satan's offspring. We have the woman's offspring. Two different groups who are at war with each other. Does the context of Genesis support such a thing? You betcha. In fact, from this point on, we're going to see there are always two groups and they're always at war. Let me give you some examples. Well, you know, turn to chapter four and you see Cain and Abel. There's the first example. Uh, uh, Later down the road, we'll have Israel and the rest of the world. Uh, Israel and Egypt, Israel and 
Canaan, Israel, and the Philistines, Israel and the Amalekites, Israel and Assyria, Israel and Babylon, and so the list goes. Now, again, when I speak this way, if we look at Israel, we'll see even within Israel there are two different groups. There are those who are the true church and the true Israel, and those are those who are not. When you turn to the pages of the New Testament, uh, you find that there are the sheep and the goats, right? The sheep and the goats. So we see this constantly through Bible. There are these two opposing groups. There's the offspring of the woman and the offspring of Satan, and they're at war with each other. Now, back to our progression. We have you and the woman. That is Satan and an unnamed woman. We have your offspring and her offspring. Uh, that would be Satan's offspring. That would be the woman's offspring. That would be uh, those, uh, the woman's offspring would be the true church. Satan's offspring would be the rest. And that comes to the third category, he and you. He and you. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Now, who are the characters here? Well, the you has not changed. The you is Satan. That's easy enough. God is speaking to Satan, who is the he. Now, uh, before we go running off to the New Testament, because we say, I know the answer to this one. Uh, not so fast. Don't run to the New Testament quite so fast, because if we do, we're going to miss some things. Don't run to the New Testament quite so fast. Let's continue to wrestle with the passage. We see here that whoever the he is, okay, he will bruise the head of Satan, whoever he is. The NIV famously renders the passage, he will crush the head of Satan. It's a fatal injury that takes place. It's an injury that leads to death. So whoever he is, he is going to deal a deadly blow to Satan. But whoever he is, he will also be injured in the process because we're told Satan will bruise his heel. That's a non-life-threatening injury. Fair enough? Now, before we run to the New Testament, let me point out that there's a real point of anxiety here for Satan. I mean, this is really, really, God is like so brilliant. It's a real, remember a few moments ago, I mentioned that the woman's not named. She's not named. Think about Satan's end of this thing for a minute. I mean, okay, he understands there's a fight that's going to take place. He understands that he's going to be crushed in the fight. He knows that his opponent will be born of a woman, but he doesn't know who the woman is. Think of the anxiety that would cause and the restlessness because Satan has to actually anxiously watch as women bear their sons because he does not know which one will bear the son that will be his conqueror. And uh, Satan is a creature of a powerful intellect. He can narrow it down to a certain degree, but at the end of the day, he doesn't know exactly who it is. And uh, he must anxiously and restlessly watch. And there's a principle here. I mean, defying the Lord brings restlessness and anxiety. Not 25% of the time, not 35% of the time, not 50% of the time, not 75% of the time, 100% of the time. It'll happen every time when we defy the Lord, when we refuse to believe the Lord, when we refuse him, when we refuse the, the, the gospel. The result will always be anxiety and restlessness every time, 100% of the time. Pills cannot fix this. We live in an age where pills are being made constantly to try to fix this problem, and they are failing, aren't they? 
miserably. Now, of course, the New Testament unveils the identity of he, and we all know the answer. He is Christ. And uh, let's think about Let's think about the order of things in the gospel. Jesus comes to John the Baptist and he is baptized, right? And when he is baptized, we have this wonderful Trinitarian scene that takes place. When Jesus is being baptized, as the baptismal waters are being applied to Jesus, a voice from heaven is heard. This is my son. And the Holy Spirit is represented by the dove, right? And the cosmos is watching. The authorities and principalities of the evil places and the darkness is watching. Satan himself is watching. Aha! There's the one. And Satan is on it. And what immediately happens after Jesus is baptized? He's brought out into the wilderness where he is tempted by Satan himself, isn't he? Satan puts his best move on him. Why? Because he knows the promise. He's a a creature of powerful intellect. He knows the promise back in Genesis 3.15. He knows the time is growing short. There he is. There's the one. I will tempt him. I will put the same move on him that I put on Eve. But what happens? He's powerless against Jesus, isn't he? He receives a blow in that battle. It's not a deadly blow, but he receives a blow. And he actually receives a blow every time Jesus preaches the gospel. And he receives a blow every time Jesus encounters demons and orders them to be silent. And he encounters a blow every time Jesus orders demons out of people and performs those exorcisms. And he performs these things, but his decisive defeat comes at the cross. Now, again, if you've opened, if you've answered my opening question with the word cross, you answered correctly. Let's get back to that question. How does Jesus defeat Satan at the cross? Well, here's something we need to keep in mind uh, to answer this question. We need to understand what Satan's weapons are. And let's think this through. When Jesus, before before he goes to the cross, Jesus is brought on trial, isn't he? And he's brought before the, the, really the the leaders of the church of the day. They're the ones that crucify him. He's brought before the high priests. And what are they doing to him? What do they do? They accuse him. They falsely accuse him. Matthew records it. Matthew 26, verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. Mark's gospel tells us that many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Jesus is on trial and he's being falsely accused. Falsely accused. And um, this is the devil's work. The devil is the accuser. Satan is the accuser. The book of Revelation teaches us this. Satan accuses. Zechariah chapter 3 teaches us. Zechariah 3, I wanted to bring that in, but, but let's just think about it. You can look at it this afternoon. There Joshua the high priest is and Satan's accusing him. Accusing him of all his sin. Satan is the accuser and they're putting these, these 
false accusations against Jesus. And why are they doing it? Because they want to destroy him. And Satan enters into Judas Iscariot. Judas betrays Jesus, giving up Jesus' location. They go, they arrest Jesus, they bring him back, they falsely accuse him of these trumped-up charges, and he is condemned to death on the cross, isn't he? And as he's hanging there, I would imagine that Satan and his band of buddies are having a party. Satan and all his offspring are having a party. Oh, you'll crush our head, huh? You're going to crush our head. Look at you now. We got you. We got you right where we want you. Look at you. And think of the insults that are hurled at Jesus. If you're the Christ, if you're the Christ, come on down off the cross. We got you. We got you. Think of the relief that Satan experiences at this point in time. Oh, after anxiously watching uh, all these centuries and there Jesus is hanging on the cross. And think of the party they're throwing until Jesus says, it is finished. What? You can almost feel the butterflies feeling, filling Satan's heart when he hears these words. And he applies his powerful intellect to trying to figure out what is Jesus talking about? It's finished. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? Oh, it is finished. What is finished? What, what does he mean? You can, you can almost sense his soul being all disturbed again over this whole thing. What is he talking about? Well, on the third day, Jesus is going to rise from the dead. And when he rises from the dead, he will be vindicated of your accusations. You're the slanderer. You are the accuser. And you are three days away from being silenced permanently. And that's how Jesus defeats Satan at the cross. That's one of the ways. It's multifaceted. But that's one of the ways. And if you answer that way at the, at the water cooler or at the coffee pot at work, you do well. Because we're in a little bit different of a predicament than Jesus is. Jesus is he is sinless. Those accusations against Jesus were false. But we know something about our hearts, don't we? And our biggest problem is the fact that we know that those many of those accusations are not false. If Satan wanted to run into God's presence and accuse any one of us, he wouldn't have to make anything up. He's got plenty of fodder. Because we're all guilty, aren't we? So how does Jesus defeat him? By taking our sins upon himself. He takes our sins upon himself. Why is he there? Because Satan put him there? Satan didn't put him there. Satan did not put Jesus there. He thought he put him there. Oh, he, I think he, I'm going to conjecture here, but I think they thought they got him. They thought they put him there. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm laying my life down on my own. No one, no one takes it from me. You're not going to take Jesus' life from him. Who is he? It's God in the flesh. So many times they tried to take his life from him. They tried to stone him. He walked right away freely. Satan thought he had him right where he wanted him. Why is Jesus there? 
He's silencing the accuser. He's taking the sins of all those who have put their faith and their trust in him. All of those whom he has come to save. All those whom God has given him out of eternity's past. Every last single sin. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, you do from time to time experience this accusing spirit, don't you? Once in a while, you experience this nagging, accusing, accusative voice that's telling you all the stuff that you've done. And the most painful thing about it is it's true. I did do it. I have done it. And that's when we need to understand how that voice has been silenced because that voice is not God's voice. That voice has its origin in the accuser. And the accuser has been silenced. There's no need to take a pill to silence that voice because you've got the cross. And the resurrection. Why is Jesus there? Yes, you did all that stuff. I did all that stuff. We did all that stuff. But why is Jesus on the cross? We tell ourselves. Because he took the penalty for that stuff. And he took it away. And that voice has no right. To accuse you. Because it's been silenced. We did that stuff. We go to God. We repent of that stuff. I did it, Lord. I did it. I did it because I wanted to do it and I enjoyed it. And now I hate it. And I ask that you would forgive me. And God can give you forgiveness because he has punished Jesus for it. He's already 2,000 years ago punished Jesus for it. And forgiveness can be freely offered you. And that's, that voice is silenced. That voice is silence. We will not get anywhere in the Christian life until we understand this foundational teaching. How is Jesus defeated at the cross? He silences the accuser, doesn't he? So you're at the water cooler and someone says, you you guys believe that Jesus actually defeated Satan. And you can say, you know what? It was the most brilliant tactical move that has ever been made. Think about how brilliant it was. Jesus took on the most, one of the most powerful creatures that God ever made with an intellect that is towering, an intellect that we couldn't begin to comprehend and understand. And Jesus defeated him so swiftly and so decisively, so swiftly and so decisively, decisively that he thought he was winning the whole time. He had no idea. Jesus used his, Satan's very own hatred and hostility and malice to defeat him at the cross. He silenced the accuser. And I think when we answer that way, we pray that the Lord will fill the hearts of the hearers with awe. Because if Jesus can defeat the most powerful enemy under the sun, we have nothing to worry about, do we? Amen? Heavenly Father, I pray you fill our hearts with awe as we look to this promise that has been made and fulfilled in Christ Jesus. How you decisively and swiftly defeat Jesus at the cro- or Satan at the cross. And how you silence the accuser, Father. Fill our hearts with this fundamental truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.